Good morning, church. It's been a few weeks since I've gotten to say, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Feels good. I like being able to say that to you. I like seeing you turn in your Bibles. As Jacob and Seth already mentioned, uh, we are in Philippians 1, as today we kick off our annual focus on both our mission and our building fund. The two go hand in hand. Uh, We say here that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. What's making disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, it's multiplying disciples of Jesus, it's making new ones, and it's maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And to do that effectively, uh, we need a building that helps to facilitate our mission, to facilitate our ministry. And so we need a bigger building. We need a larger building. And here are a few reasons why we are praying for and saving for a larger building. Uh, One, we want a space big enough for us to all gather in one service. Amen? Amen. Amen. Two, we want a space big enough for us to invite new people into our church and have, you know, seats for them. Three, we want a space big enough for us to do more ministry on Sunday mornings. We envision more ministry space down here so we can be praying for people and counseling people, caring for people without kind of being in the way as people are trying to make their way in and out. Four, we want a space big enough for us to offer adult discipleship classes every Sunday morning. We want a space, number five, big enough for us to fellowship in without having to press people outside into the elements. Six, we want a space big enough for us to become a hub church, a kind of mission base from which we can plant other churches and support them in this area. So we are asking God for a bigger building. We are saving for a bigger building. It makes sense that we're saving for a bigger building because uh, it's wise to save up for what you need. It's wise to plan for the future even though we know God has to supply it. We know God's got to land us where he wants us. And so we are asking you to prayerfully consider what the Lord would lead you to contribute to our Multiply Fund this year. How much would God lead you to give? Now, as we think about our mission and our building fund this year, there is a particular theme I want us to be thinking about. Uh, It's the joy of partnering together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The joy of advancing the gospel, the thrill of multiplying and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ together, the happy work we get to do together, the joy-giving, soul-satisfying work of knowing Jesus better and making him known That's the work we do together. There's nothing better that we get to do together. Nothing more gratifying we can do together. And keeping this in view, keeping this in perspective is what makes sewing into a new building and and planning for a new building and saving up for a new building, it, it makes it a joyous work as well. Not a chore, but something we can do cheerfully. So I want us to spend a few weeks meditating on the joy God has for us in gospel partnership, and there really just is no better place to turn to in scripture for this than the book of Philippians. Uh, This beautiful little epistle is just chock full of joy. It is a happy letter. In fact, we have 13 of Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament, and this is by far his happiest. And, and don't we need a little happiness in our life right now? Yes. Don't we need a little bit more joy, like a shot of joy in the arm? We are living through some difficult days. Now, I just saw an interview with a, a high-profile pastor, a very well-known pastor who's been in ministry for decades, and I've heard testimonies like his um, from a number of seasoned pastors. And He was saying, I've just never ministered in a time like this one. I've just never seen a time like this one. Not just the pandemic he's talking about, there's that, plus there's the whole polarization in our culture, all the conflict that's going on, and then you throw on top of that all the technology and how much time people are spending on social media and being informed by this kind of immersive public discourse that we're always in and formed formed more by that out there than they are by what's going on in here in the church, and it's all creating this kind of crisis moment that he and others like him have never faced before, and it's kind of like, well, welcome to 2022. The moment of crisis for all of us, the moment of difficult days, they continue. Man, we could use some joy right now. 
We could use some good news. I'm looking for a response. We could use some glad tidings of great joy. And we get that in Philippians. We get it in Philippians. In just four short chapters, Paul mentions the theme of joy 16 times. So this is a seriously happy epistle. Joy is a major theme here, and so too is this idea of partnership, of working together in knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. For example, chapter one, verse five, Paul says, I thank God with joy for you because of your partnership in. Your partnership in, the word is koinia. Uh, uh, it's, it's participation in, your fellowship in, your work with me in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Philippians, they were partners with Paul in the gospel. They fellowshiped with him in being saved and they fellowshiped with him in making Jesus known. The two worked together hand in hand to help grow in Christ and help each other spread the news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul thanked God with joy for their partnership in the gospel, in knowing Jesus and making him known. Gospel work is happy work. If it's become drudgery, something's off. Because gospel work is happy work for people who know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a source of joy and delight for us. And so that's our theme this year. That's what we're going to be looking at these next five weeks, the joy of partnership. Different elements of that joy, different characteristics of that joy. We're gonna spend five weeks on six verses. And I know what you're thinking. Five weeks on six verses? Jace, we could spend 12 weeks on six verses. You're right. I'm sorry to disappoint. I'm gonna do the best I can, but we are gonna spend five weeks on six verses and we're gonna see a whole lot of joy. A whole lot of joy. If you're taking notes, the title of my message today is The Joy of Remembering. The Joy of Remembering. Today we're gonna see how joy, the joy we have in Jesus, affects the way we think about each other. The way we call to mind thoughts about each other. So the joy of remembering, and our our attention's really gonna be devoted to verse three, or at least that's where we're gonna focus in application, but I I wanna read verses one through eight, and we're gonna do a whole lot of background to this passage today. So please follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us, Philippians one, verses one through eight. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. May the Lord now bless the preaching and the believing of his word. In verse one here, we are introduced to the author of this letter, It's, it's Paul. It's Paul, the beloved apostle converted on the Damascus Road, probably the most noble servant of Jesus this world has ever known. Paul is the model and example for every Christian. He's an incredible man. You can't study Paul's life enough. And perhaps the most concise description of Paul anywhere in scripture is given to us right here in this letter. Uh, If you will, turn with me over for a minute to chapter three, Philippians chapter three. I want you 
attention to be drawn to verse four here for a second and, and a few more verses after that. Here is the Apostle Paul. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. All right, Paul's saying here, listen, okay, if we're gonna compare fleshly credentials, if, if, if we're gonna compare resumes of righteousness, here's mine, and I'm gonna beat you, he's saying. <laughs> you know, here's mine, watch what I've got. This is Paul's self-portrait, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, hey, among my, my peers, I'm esteemed as the epitome of a Hebrew. You wanna meet a Hebrew? You can't get more Hebrew than me. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. In other words, he says, I attach myself to the group most zealous for God's law. As to zeal, you really wanna know my zeal though? It goes even higher than this, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless, so he's saying, in the eyes of my peers, blameless. You couldn't find someone who kept God's law more strictly than I did. But, verse seven, but, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So that's Paul, friends, that's this man. He was a Jew, he was a legalistic Jew, he was a jealous zoo, or a zealous Jew, he kept the law as well as any man could keep it, he was blameless before his peers, Paul had everything going for him in the flesh that one could, but then he met Jesus Christ. Then he met Jesus Christ and Paul's accounting completely changed. In his commentary, Sean McDowell writes, what formerly went into Paul's gain column, his power, prestige, and obedience, now goes into his loss column. Likewise, the crucified Messiah, whom he had assumed must be a loss, is now seen as the ultimate gain. So what was gain is now loss, and what was loss is now gain. Paul's values have completely reversed, and then going even further than this, Paul not only considered everything as loss in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, but he also intensifies this repudiation by counting it all as rubbish in comparison. It's rubbish. It's a word that refers to garbage, to rotten food, even to excrement. It's a, it's a vulgar word. Some people say it's a cuss word. They, they try to make Paul, they wanna get edgy, and they want to say, oh, Paul's cussing here. Well, Paul's not cussing here. It's not offensive like that. But it is a word you don't say at the dinner table back in these days, okay? It's not a polite word. It's a vulgar word. It can refer to manure. It can refer to, to dung. And so Paul's saying, listen, in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, everything else is not only worthless, it's repulsive to me in comparison. They don't measure up. That's how much better Jesus is to me, Paul is saying. He is the pearl of greatest price. He is the diamond in the rough. Paul mentions Jesus over 50 times in this epistle. I mean, Christ was just his passion. Christ was just his passion. Uh, is Christ your passion? Let's think about that this morning. Christ was Jesus, or Christ was Paul's singular passion. You wanna ask what he's passionate about? Jesus Christ. Everything else, rubbish, dung, excrement. Don't even care about it. I just wanna know Jesus. Is that your testimony going into 2022? Is Jesus your singular passion? Well, that's Paul's singular passion, and this is his testimony, and this is his passion. And now we wanna take a look at his circumstances, because Paul's got some unique circumstances when he wrote this letter. Here's where Paul was when he wrote this letter. Paul was in chains. You think your life's bad right now? Paul was in chains. He impresses this upon us at least four times in this first chapter alone. In verse seven, Philippians 1, 7, he says, in my imprisonment. In verse 13, my imprisonment. In verse 14, my imprisonment. In verse 17, again, my imprisonment. The word can also be translated chains or bonds. So this is one of Paul's prison epistles. 
He wrote four uh, epistles from prison that we know of, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians here, and that, that little letter Philemon. If you read Ephesians, he says he's in prison. If you read Colossians, he says he's in prison. If you read Philippians, he says he's in prison, as we already saw. And if you read Philemon, he says he's in prison. So we know where Paul's at. He's imprisoned. He's imprisoned in Rome. And let me give you the backstory here, because it's, it's a fun, it's a fascinating one. It's, a, it's an instructive story. Here's what happened. Paul had wanted to visit Rome. He longed to go to Rome. We read about this in Romans chapter one. He wrote them this epistle, the believers there, and he says that he was praying somehow that by God's will, he could succeed in coming to them. Somehow, if God could work it out, I'd love to come to you, he says. Little does he know how God is gonna work it out. So he longs to minister among the Christians there in Rome, and he passionately wants to evangelize in this great citadel of paganism. Again, in Romans 1, he says, I hope to come to you that I might reap a harvest among you. So Paul longs to go to Rome, and now he, now, now he finds himself there. He is in Rome, only not as he imagined he might be in Rome. God has answered Paul's prayer. Be careful how you pray. God has answered Paul's prayer, only not as Paul expected him to. And that is just like God. He is always doing the unexpected in our lives. You know why? Because he's God. And I mean by that, not only that he can do whatever he wants, but he is so not like us. His ways are not our ways. And so God is always doing the unexpected in our lives. And so he brought Paul to Rome. He answered his prayer. He got him there, but he got him there in chains. He brought him there as a prisoner. The record of this is given to us in Acts 21 through 28, if you want to go read that later this week. It's the whole last quarter of the book of Acts. Now, it deals with Paul's imprisonment. And here's the gist of it. It's pretty amazing. He's arrested in Jerusalem, and then after a couple of phony trials there, he's transferred to a prison in Caesarea. And scholars can put it together that he's basically, between his imprisonment in Jerusalem and Caesarea, he's in prison for about two years. And then he's transferred in chains to Rome, which is a pretty incredible adventure. This is where he gets shipwrecked one of those times. Uh, but God spared his life, brought him to Rome, and he's in chains in Rome, and he's in chains there for two years. So get that, folks. Don't miss this. It's pretty surprising that God, surprising me, surprising to us, that God would have his greatest missionary, his greatest evangelist, most successful evangelist, his apostle to the Gentiles, his most noble servant, arrested and imprisoned for four years. What is God doing? I love that line from the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. That's so true. He does. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He does it so that he gets the glory. So there's no doubt who's doing this and what he's about. And so God's got Paul in prison He's moving in a mysterious way. What in the world, Paul, I mean, God, what are you doing? But then what do we get out of it? Well, we get Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. <laughs> we get four epistles that last over 2,000 years to strengthen Christians and the church. So if you are sidelined in your life right now, if you're watching from home and COVID has you sidelined, or if you're looking at everything going on with COVID and you're tempted to think, God, what in the world are you doing? I mean, this makes no sense, God. What in the world are you doing? Well, you just wait and watch. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Just you wait and watch what God is doing. Listen, friends, God's not sidelined. God's not flummoxed by all this. God's not unsure about how to make the most of these days. No, God, you know what God's doing? God's at work. That's what God's doing. God is at work working all things according to the counsel of his will. God knows exactly what he's about right now. Listen to this. John Piper serves us so well when he writes, God's purposes are good, 
and God is at work in the worst of times. He is at work doing a thousand things no one can see but him. A thousand things which no one can see but him. But here's my problem. Here is my predicament in this. It's not difficult for me to affirm that God's purposes are good. Can you do that? God's purposes are good. That to me is easy to say, amen. And that God is at work in the worst of times. That's easy for me to say, amen. And then I love how Piper crafts that sentence. He's at work doing a thousand things no one can see but him. That's my problem. Because my prayer is, God, could I just see a couple of them? I believe you're doing a thousand of them and it would just help my little soul if I could see just maybe one or two, maybe three. Piper continues, all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off of a cliff. Praise the Lord, that's good. I believe that's true. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. God is plotting for our joy. Now, keep that in mind as you remember, friends, who is writing this joyful little letter that we're studying and where he finds himself. He is in prison, he's under guard, he's awaiting a potential sentence of execution, and yet, God has plotted for his joy. He is a happy prisoner. He is a joy-filled captive because he's not only confident in God, he's not only confident God is gonna work all things for good, but he is already seeing something of what God is about. God's doing a thousand different things Paul can't see. He has no idea, he has no idea that these letters are being, that he's writing are gonna turn into the New Testament. He didn't know the Holy Spirit's doing that. He doesn't know what God is doing, a thousand different things at this time, but he does have a glimpse of a couple things God's doing that he can report to us about. A couple things that are just filling him with joy. So Philippians 1, look down with me at verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. (laughs) Well, that makes a gospel man happy. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, God took Paul off the mission field, so to speak, but only to put him into another. From his imprisonment, Paul is reaching some of the hardest to reach, some of the most unreachable people, and yet some of the most powerful men in the world at that time. The Imperial Guard, the Praetorian Guard, the the Palace Guards. These were the elite soldiers of the day. They were a group of about 10,000 hand-picked men responsible for keeping the peace in Rome. And these were hardened soldiers, and these were extremely influential men. Uh, These guys had a lot of sway in that city and in that empire. Eventually, they become more powerful than the Senate. They become the kingmakers, essentially. So these are the elite soldiers, and they are the elite of society. And Paul's situation was one such that he was chained to one of them every single day, 24-7. That's what we're told over in Acts 28. His imprisonment is one of being chained to a guard. So Paul's not actually in a a jail cell. He's in a, a home, he's under house arrest. But he's chained to one of these imperial guards 24 seven. The chain would have been about 18 inches long. So think about this. I mean, all day, every day, he's got a guy literally right there by his side in everything he does. Everything he does, going to sleep, you got a guy chained to you. Going to the restroom, you got a guy chained to you. Need to take a bath, you got a guy chained to you. Writing a letter, got a guy chained to you. And then every six hours, they would change out these guards. That was Roman policy. And Paul would get a new guy. So he's in chains, but the bright side of it is, he's under house arrest, where he can receive people into his house. 
He can preach to anybody who comes to him. He can write letters like this one to the Philippians. And so through all that, over the course of a couple of years, here's what happened. As these guards, they're hearing Paul preach. I mean, think about it. He's literally got a captive audience. It's like a pastor's dream. I mean, you just can't get away from me. And I've got you for six hours. Oh boy, do I have some sermons. I, I've bored people. Paul's like, I've bored people. They fell out the window and died. And he's well, brought back. And I kept on preaching. So listen, I can keep going, brother and you're chained to me, you're stuck to me, okay? So he's got these guys stuck to him for six hours of time, pastor's dream, these guards are listening to, to Paul's message and they're, they're watching how he lives and how he acts and how he treats people and how he treats them and they're seeing, this is a man of integrity. This is the guy who is the same way in front of the people as he is in private. He's like this 24 seven, every day of the week, every day of the year for two years. This is no show, he's the real deal. All of that is having an impact on them so that over the course of two years, the whole imperial guard has come to know that his imprisonment is for Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that they all believe in Jesus, but it means he's having a real evangelistic impact amongst those people. It's the mission field he never could have dreamed of going to, but that God has opened the door to. It was an incredible opportunity, and it was having this rippling effect. Word was getting out about this. I mean, the same would happen in our day, right? Like, if in the U.S. Senate today, we saw a revival broke out. You know, like numbers of senators are coming. Not all of them, but, you know, like 10, 15 senators are coming to Jesus Christ. Word's going to get out about that. Word spreads. I mean, we'd hear about it across our nation. We would. We'd all be hearing about it and talking about it and praying about it. And so words getting out across all are finding out Paul's imprisonment is for Christ because it's having an impact on these imperial guards. Word is getting out, the gospel is spreading. In chapter four, Paul ends this letter to the Philippians saying, all the saints greet you, all the Christians here greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He's saying, hey, we're even getting people on the inside. They're coming to know Jesus Christ, and they greet you. Little Roman colony of, of Philippi. And the effect of this, another ripple effect of all this, Paul reports in chapter one, verse 14, is most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's bold witness, even while he's in chains, is having the effect of encouraging others in their bold witness. People are sharing the gospel without fear. And these, these were just a few of the ways that God was showing Paul the purpose of his imprisonment, why he was taken out of the mission field for four years, so to speak. These are a few of the happy things he reported. So here's, the, here's, here's, here's what we can do with this, friends. Let's be encouraged by this testimony, especially as it relates to our witnessing. COVID seems to have shut people in their homes, right? I mean, literally, some of you are shut in your home. It has decreased hospitality. It's decreased our interaction with people. It's kind of like we're under house arrest. I don't mean that as a political statement. If you go there, I rebuke that spirit. But it is like we're like Paul. Under house arrest at times. Kept from people at times. But that means God is doing a thousand different things we can't see. A thousand different good things. And if we ask, there might even be two or three things that he's willing to show us to give us some encouragement right now. So how about this? How about this? Let's ask God to open our eyes to the mission field that's all around us. Let's ask God to open our eyes to the harvest that's all around us, that Jesus says is white for the picking. But the laborers are few. The problem's not with the fields. The problem's with the workers. Let's pray that God would help us to see the white field all around us, and let's ask God to send us out as laborers to work those fields. 
And let's take confidence from Paul's imprisonment so that we can resolve, like most of the brothers there, to be bold to speak the word without fear. That's what we need. It's no good if you're a laborer in the field, but you're a, you know, laborers who walk through the fields but aren't actually picking, aren't actually harvesting, are not actually good laborers. We can be walking in the fields, we can be laboring in the fields, but if we're not actually boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, we're not actually laboring. So you've got that neighbor who you, you can't ever imagine coming to Jesus Christ. Or you've got that coworker, you can't ever imagine believing in Jesus. Or you've got a kid who's going after the world. Or you've got a fellow student, a friend at school, who you can't ever imagine becoming a disciple of Jesus. Well, friends, be bold in your witness. Tell them in word and in deed. Do that and do it for a couple of years, like Paul. And just you wait and see what God will do. Our God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. All right, so that's Paul, and that's Paul's circumstances. Now let's look at Paul's audience, the Philippians. Who are these Christians? Why is he writing them? Well, Paul loves the Philippians. Man, he loves these guys. They hold a special place in his heart. Just look at verses seven and eight for a minute. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers, that's that partnership language. That, 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 I mean, that's what that word is. You're partners with me, partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is how we ought to talk about each other. I mean, there's, there's something wrong if we don't have this kind of f- affection and moving love for one another. This is what Christians feel for each other. I mean, this is tender language. The Philippians are so very dear to Paul. They're special to him. And he keeps mentioning his imprisonment in this letter four times, just in chapter one, like we saw, because he's basically writing to tell them, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. There are things he wants to address in the letter too. He's gonna gonna talk to them about their unity. He's concerned about their faithfulness in the face of opposition. He's concerned about the influence of Judaizers among them. He's concerned about a couple of women who he calls out for fighting in the church. It's embarrassing. (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to be those people, right? Who in a members meeting you get called out. And by the way, you and you quit fighting. Everybody else help them. That's what he does. That'd be so embarrassing. Don't get into sin like that. We don't want to have to do that here, right? Like you don't want. To, he's got things he's got to deal with here. But but that's not the main thing he's writing about. The main reason Paul's writing them is because he's heard he received message that they're so concerned for him. They're worried that he's suffering and that he's fearful for his life. And basically, Paul's writing to say to them, look, hey guys. I'm rejoicing here. I'm doing fine. I'm happy. I count this trial a joy. So, so a joy. So, listen. Don't worry about me. In fact, here it is. Don't do any less than me. Be happy. Be joyful in Jesus Christ. We have good reason to be. That's basically why he's writing. So, who are these? Who are these Philippians that he cares so deeply for? That he's so affectionate for? Well, this brings us to verse three. And we'll look at verse 4 too. We're zeroing in on our passage, kind of. I've got a long excursus here in just a second. Just so you know, it's coming. Don't worry, it's coming. We've got we to do some background work in Acts again in just a minute. But, but here's our verse. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul's filled with thankful joy, grateful happiness. Whenever he remembers the Philippians, as often as he thinks about them, he's just got fond memories, happy thoughts about them. All right, so let me give you a little bit of background here. How, how, who is this church? How did it begin? It's a great story. Man, it's a great story. You should read about Acts chapter 16. 
Go and study it this week. I, I was like, this is a, I, 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 my sermon was like twice as long because I practically wanted to preach a whole other sermon out of Acts chapter 16. And, and, but I didn't want this sermon series to go 12 weeks, so I'll give you the very short version that I can. Here's how this church began. Paul had taken Timothy with him on, on his second missionary journey. And, and two others went along with him, Silas and Luke. And they traveled on land, here it is, they traveled on land from Jerusalem on up through Israel, up through modern day Syria and Lebanon, and, and into Turkey, and then they, they cut west and they head across Turkey and they got all the way to the Aegean Sea. And then they wondered, where should we go next? And, and it's one of those weird passages where they tried to go here, but the Spirit stopped them. And they tried to go here, and the Spirit stopped them. And, and so they're wondering, where, okay, God, where do you want us to go then? I'm always curious, like, how did the Spirit stop them? What does that mean? Like, how does the Spirit stop them? I just, you know, no. Okay, well, that's clear. So maybe it was like, well, but here, but they didn't get direction like that. Next, because Acts verse, 16 verse 9 says, and then a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay, can't go here, can't go here. Pretty clear, God wants to go here. So this was God's call for them to take the gospel. And here's, this, is, this is what's exciting here. This was leaving Asia and going to Europe for the first time. For the first time. God was calling Christianity to Europe so this is, this is really exciting to think about, the development of the gospel, the advance of the gospel here. So Paul heads to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and it's a Roman colony. And they stay there for a few days, and then on the Sabbath day, Paul's custom was, if he's visiting a city, where did Paul go first? Anybody know? The synagogue, that's right. He would go to the synagogue first and start evangelizing there. But in Philippi, there didn't happen to be a synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men in a city to start a synagogue. So this tells us there wasn't much of a Jewish population in Philippi. They didn't have 10 10 Jewish men there. So on the Sabbath day, instead, he goes where? Anybody know? Down by the riverside. He went to the riverside, Acts 16 tells us. Why did he go to the riverside? Why did he go down to the river? Well, Psalm 137, Psalm 137 tells us that when the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, they would go down by the water's side to weep for their homeland. And they would go down to the water side, weeping, water, mourning, get the symbolism. They would go down to the water side and they would mourn for the chance to worship at the temple in Jerusalem again. And out of that grew this tradition that if they were in a foreign city and there wasn't a synagogue, they would meet down by the riverside or down by the water's edge to pray. And so that's where Paul goes to see if he can find any Jews. And lo and behold, he does. There are a few Jewish women down there and he meets with them and he begins to open the scripture to them and to teach them about Jesus Christ. And one of these ladies' name was Lydia. We're told she had a business selling purple fabric. And in Acts 16, we're told this. As Paul's teaching, the Lord, listen to this, opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Now that, that is an interesting description of a conversion. That's a very interesting description of a conversion. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. So that's what I'm praying sometimes as I'm preaching to you all. May the Lord open their heart that they might pay attention. And parents, take note of this, You can share the gospel with your children till you are blue in the face, but it's the Lord who opens their heart to pay attention. So don't get discouraged. Don't have anxious toil here. You can't do it. It's a work of God. Rest in that. Rest in that. The Lord opens the heart so they can pay attention. So don't fret, just pray. Ask God to open their heart that they might pay attention. That's what God did in Lydia's heart, and he did that for her whole household. They all believed too, and together we're told they were all baptized. I mean, man, what a sweet day. The whole household gets baptized together. So God is doing an amazing work. He's kicking this thing off strong at the start of the church in Philippi. And it's also the start of the church in Europe, which is pretty amazing. 
The, fir- so, the first convert in Europe is a woman. I think that's awesome. It's beautiful. Because, you know, there are a lot of people like to say that Christianity is this place where there's not much, there's not much space for women. There's not a place for women. Just because we believe there's a pattern to authority and that men should lead in the church and men should lead in the home, which means men should take responsibility, which is what men should be doing. But that that does not mean there's no place for women in Christianity. Just a tangent here for a minute. Can I just say, in a very official pastoral way, that that is baloney. It's baloney. That there's not a place, a special place in Christianity for women. Jesus had women disciples. No rabbi did that. No rabbi did that. That was a completely new thing. Women have always had a special place in following Jesus Christ. Paul lists in Romans a number of women who were co-workers with him in the gospel. And we know that, there are, that deacons can have female deaconesses. There can be female ones as well. We, we see that in the teachings of, of, of Timothy and also in Romans chapter 16. Get this, the fir- get this, the first person Jesus revealed himself to as the Messiah was a Samaritan woman, John chapter four. And get this, the first person to witness Jesus' resurrection was a woman of ill repute, a Jewish woman of ill repute, Mary Magdalene. And here, the first convert in Europe was a woman, Lydia. Pretty incredible. Women are highly esteemed by Jesus Christ. They're totally equal to men. He, they had total same value as men, but he does ask them to play a different role in life. And because of this, he honors them. And we should honor you too. We honor you women. We honor you ladies in our life. And we're thankful for the way that you build up the church of Jesus Christ with the gifts that you have been given. Now here in the, okay, back off my, my tangent, off my tangent. Now back, I'm trying to get back on track here. In our story, this is where God moves in a mysterious way again, his wonders to perform. Soon after this, they are going to a place of prayer, we're told in Acts 16, probably back down by the riverside. And a slave girl with a spirit of divination, a, a, a demon-possessed girl, who brought her owners a lot of money by fortune-telling, this girl starts following Paul around. She starts trailing him. It's odd, right? Just a strange occurrence. Why is, this, why is this girl following Paul around? Well, she starts crying out the loud, you know, with a loud voice. She's probably like she's fortune-telling, probably like she's prophesying. And she says to, she's cry, this is why she keeps crying around for days. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that's interesting. Was she right or wrong? She's right. She's completely right. She's telling the truth. And friends, this is a lesson about Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that he appears as an angel of light. So what Satan does most of the time is he appears pretty truthfully. He, he, He sticks pretty close to the truth. Satan's tactic is usually to tell the truth about eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times. And then it's that little lie that's just sewn in there, that little hook that he gets people with and he pulls them in. And that's why he's so dangerous. That's why he's so deceptive. Because it sounds right a lot of the time. But the Bible tells us don't be ignorant of his schemes. So this little slave girl, she's following around, she's announcing the truth, she's telling the truth, but it's pretty easy to see Satan's schemes here. Because it's not going to be long for Paul and his men have to move on. They have to go on to another city to keep on evangelizing. But who's going to still be there as some kind of spiritual authority? This demon-possessed girl is. So who do you think people are going to be coming to? This demon-possessed girl. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't having it. He was patient for a few days. She's following around trying this. I, I imagine he's trying to reason with her. He's trying, you know, like trying to help, trying to do something. But finally we're told he's annoyed. Which doesn't sound as, as impatient as it does in English. It means he's troubled. He's stirred up in his soul by it. And so he turns around and he rebukes her. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, this is his spirit, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Friends, that's the power of Jesus' name. The demon leaves her. 
Well, this infuriates the girls' masters. She's lost her power. I mean, they don't care about her. They don't care that she's freed. They don't care that she's better. They've lost, she's lost her power, which means they've lost their income. And so they seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them before the authorities. And for some reason, they didn't grab Timothy or Luke. We don't know why. But they grab Paul and Silas, and they bring them before the magistrates and accuse them of causing trouble in the city. There's a crowd there. Everyone jumps in on this. They get upset. Mob mentality takes over. Everyone starts beating on Paul and Silas. The magistrates order them to be stripped and then beaten with rods. Many times, we're told, many times they were, they were afflicted with blows, and then they were thrown in prison. So here you have two broken and bloodied men thrown into a dark jail cell, and they're put in stocks, we're told. They're put in stocks. And how do they respond to all this? What's their attitude in prison? Verse 25 tells us, they cried themselves to sleep. No, they didn't do that. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. How about that? You think you've got some problems? These guys are bloodied and in bonds, but they're singing and they're praising God. What an example for us, right? I mean, these are godly men. It reminds me of how Paul describes Abraham's faith in Romans chapter four. Uh, Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's what the the godly do in the face of, of troubles. They glorify God. They praise God in the storm, fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. That's Romans 4, 20 and 21. It's helped me through a lot of trials. So there's Paul and Silas singing in their jail cell, praying to God, and something, something incredible happens. God shakes the place. He shakes the prison cell in such a way that their bonds are broken open, the jail doors are broken open, everybody is set free. They're all free. It's a miracle for them, but not for the jailer who's responsible for them. For him, this is a problem. For him, this is the end of his line. There's gonna be consequences that they're all getting free. And so he determines that he's going to kill himself. He's gonna end his life instead of face that kind of consequence. And so mercy of mercies, though, out of the darkness of that dank old prison cell, Paul calls out, don't do it. Stop. I mean, man, he's taking leadership even right there in that moment. Don't do it. He says, we're all still here. Come and see. So the jailer calls for a light, and sure enough, there they all are. No one's left. No one's escaped. And he's so relieved. He's so grateful. He's so impressed that he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Man, that's exciting, isn't it? Apparently, he'd been listening to their songs and prayers. He's heard them talking about Jesus Christ, and he's like, brother, I want in on that. This is some good stuff you guys got in on. I want in on it. How do I do that? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's for all of y'all, the good news. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. And Paul and the others spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he was baptized, he and all his family. Man, another good day in Philippi. So here we have another household added to the church. It's starting to grow now. And the next day, Paul and Silas are released from prison, which is a cool story in itself, which I won't go into. I'm holding back, but go and read it. They get out of jail. They're asked to leave town, and they do. But that's the start of the church in Philippi. And that's the first church in Europe. It's pretty incredible. And ever since that moment, ever since that memorable time, there was this special partnership that Paul had with his church. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but on numerous occasions, they would send him financial aid. The Philippians supported Paul's ministry. They believed in the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They loved Paul. They would encourage Paul. They would help out however they could. So there was this special bond between Paul and this church, this special partnership, and this is where I want us to land. Having given you all that background, which I think is really important and pretty inspiring, which is why I go into all of it, because it's just so good, and and I want you to know who these people are, and the relationship they had, the kind of experiences they had in God, but now I want us to land on this, this first element of joy that we're focusing on here. It's the joy of remembrance. Philippians 1, 3 again, Paul says, I thank my God 
in all my remembrance of you. I mean, the very thought of this church just brought Paul happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. Which isn't to say there weren't hard memories associated with this church. I mean, remember, he'd been beaten, he'd been imprisoned here, he'd been chased out of the city, essentially. But get this, folks. Get this. This is what the Spirit of our God does. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? You remember that? Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on, right? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so what the Spirit does is He empowers us, because it takes power, to look back into the past and focus on the good. He enables us to look back and see the grace of God at work, even in the hardest of times, even in the midst of trials. And this is one way the Spirit cultivates real joy in our lives. Paul thanked God for this church, not because it was a perfect church. It wasn't perfect. No church is perfect. They had their problems. I already told you, they have issues with unity. They had you know, issues with faithfulness in, in the face of opposition. They had these two women who were fighting. But the church brought him joy. And so by way of application, here's, here's the application for us, friends. We know this church, we're not perfect. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's just true. We're not perfect. If you're a guest with us today, we know we're not perfect. We're honest about that here. We have our issues. In fact, we have issues very similar to the church in Philippi, don't we? I mean, let's be honest about it. Last couple years, have we struggled with unity some? Have we struggled with, oppos- or, you know, with faithfulness in the face of opposition? Yeah. Has there been some conflict relationally? Yeah. You might not know about all that. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's just normal church life. Because we're not all saints. I mean, we are in Jesus Christ, but we're not fully that yet, and so we're still sinners. We're both. And so we have issues. We're not a perfect church. But this is what the grace of God does in our midst. The grace of God, the Spirit of God, erases the tape of negative memories. He does. He edits them out. They're just not what we focus on. with the help of God's spirit, it's just not what we major on here. I mean, remember that wonderful little promise in Jeremiah 31 that's repeated in Hebrews 8, 12, where God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God's promise to remember our sins no more. And we've talked about this before. Does this mean God actually forgets our sins? No, he can't, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He can't just forget them. But what he means is something like, I'll never call them to mind for the purpose of condemning you. I'll never do it. I'll never think about your sins like that. Praise God, right? That's the good news of the gospel. God never recalls our sins to memory for the purpose of condemning us. He's not gonna do it. He promises. It's a sweet promise. Hold on to that promise. And that's something of how we treat one another. If we're Christ-like, We don't call each other's faults to mind for the purpose of condemning one another. We don't dwell on each other's sins. Later in Philippians, Paul writes in chapter three, this is how he lived his life, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, Paul doesn't dwell on the past. He presses on toward Jesus, and that's what we do, and that's what we do with each other. We don't focus on the bad things in our past. We acknowledge them, they're there, and there are consequences for them. We're not naive, we understand that, but where we choose to focus is on the grace we can see. We focus on how we see Jesus Christ in one another, and we press on together towards Jesus Christ, and you know what that makes? A really happy church. 
That makes for a really joyful church. So as we kick off a, a new year of gospel partnership, and I'm not just talking about our building fund here, I'm talking about our whole mission together, partners in the gospel. I wanna suggest that even in these difficult days we live in, there's a whole lot of joy to be found in recalling the goodness we see in each other, the likeness of Christ we see in each other, the way that we bless one another. Listen, there's a whole lot of joy to be found looking past the imperfections that we all know are here, looking past the glitches, and focusing instead on the acts of kindness and the expressions of love and the, the gifts that build up the body of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial care we have for each other and the beautiful testimonies we hear. Really, we're looking at the evidence of God's grace in our midst. It's everywhere. God is so gracious to us. Listen, a heart where the Spirit of God is in control does not focus on the negative, doesn't. If you are led by the Holy Spirit, that's what Galatians 5 is talking about, you're yielding to the Holy Spirit, you don't focus on people's failures. You don't focus on their faults. You don't focus on their ingratitude or the wounds they've inflicted upon you. Those things are going to happen in every church and in everywhere. We're all still sinners. But being embittered, being unforgiving, being suspicious, holding grudge, dwelling on wrongs, not being thankful, that's the work of the flesh. That's not the spirit. Listen to this quote. I I found this amusing and helpful. Thomas Hardy, author, once said, some people can find the manure pile in any meadow. (laughs) That's right. He's right. Some people can find the manure pile in any meadow. If there's something wrong, they're gonna find it. But trust me, those people are not led by the Holy Spirit. Those people are not filled with the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy! And joy even colors our past. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's the joy of thankful recollection, of grateful remembrance, of a grace-saturated and spirit-filled memory. So as we close today, I want to do something a little different. Adam, why don't you in the bank, come on up. I'm going to end this sermon in just a minute, and I want to give you a moment of silence. Adam, you can play something if you feel led. But a moment of silence before we lead into sharing the Lord's Supper so that you can quietly pray and ask the Spirit of God to produce joy in you. New joy. Fresh joy. Ask Him to do that. And you can also invite him to put the floodlight on your sin, to reveal in you any tainted remembrance, any poisoned relationship, any bitterness, any unforgiveness. Ask him to reveal it, confess your sin, and be cleansed. Receive your forgiveness. Friends, this should be one of the happiest churches in the world. Oh, there's that pastor, just, he talks long and he says ridiculous things. But I believe it. This should be one of the happiest churches in the world. And you are a happy church. I thank God for that. It is not a rebuke. I'm just stating, this should be, right? Amen? This should be one of the happiest churches in the world because we are so incredibly blessed. And I think you all are special people. Like I have, if I was gone from you and I was in prison, I'd be writing a letter just like this one. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love you guys. You're a lot of special people and we have a great partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ and there should just be a lot of joy when we think about each other. Faults and failures, yes, of course, but just so much grace to take joy in. So, let me invite you to stand in a moment of prayer, for a moment of prayer. 
where you ask for the joy of the Holy Spirit to fill you, to be renewed in you, and you can ask that the Lord will help us to spread that joy as well. Let's take a moment of prayer, and then I'll lead us into sharing the Lord's Supper.